You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. More than 24 hours after a transit cop was shot at a Surrey Skytrain station, the suspect is still on the loose. Thankfully, the officer is out of hospital and already back home. But despite police quickly releasing pictures and video of the suspected gunman, he's managed to elude a widespread search. Johnny Y is live in Surrey with the latest developments. John, what do we know? Well, it's definitely been a scary 24 hours for anyone who's been commuting or living around here. That is all reinforced by this heavy police presence. There are still officers whenever a bus comes through here. They are coming with a picture of that suspect. And all of this serves as a reminder to everyone. There is still an armed suspect on the loose. Heavily armed police going door to door. A picture of the armed suspect in hand. They come down here and see all this and that. Holy cow. Just another startling sight for residents of Surrey's Bridgeview neighborhood. A day after, a transit police officer was shot at Scott Road Skytrain Station, just minutes away. The SWAT team was here, the canine and the police, everything. This was really scary. The past 24 hours, like nothing residents here have experienced before as the manhunt for the alleged shooter continues. Our minds and hearts are also with the uh, officer that was injured. Uh, we're wishing him the best and uh, we're working as hard as we can to find this suspect and, and bring them to justice. The shooting happened around 4.20 Wednesday afternoon on the SkyTrain platform. 27-year-old Constable Joshua Harms was shot in both arms. He was taken to hospital with serious but non-life-threatening injuries, but has since been released. Being a small department, it affects each and every one of our members. Um, but, you know, we're, we're happy to hear that Josh is on the mend and uh, he will get better. Surrey RCMP have released surveillance footage of the suspect, described as a male in his 20s with dark skin. A dark stubble goatee and mustache, he was also last seen wearing a blue hoodie and white Nike running shoes. We are thoroughly combing this area, um, you know, as it relates to public safety. So um, that being said, we're not limiting our investigation to this specific area. Of course, there's the possibility that the suspect may not be in this area. An even more frightening thought for those who had loved ones stuck under lockdown. They have to stay in school because they locked down the, the whole school. The whole community has been locked down too. And little comfort for the people who say this is no way to live. This area is not really secure. Like, I need to move now. I mean, like, I need to get out of this area now. And so many will remain scared and shaken until this manhunt finally comes to an end. Now, there was word of an arrest made at Edmund Skytrain Station by Burnaby RCMP. We have been updated and told while that person did match the description of the suspect, it is not the man that Surrey RCMP, RCMP are looking for. So the message to everyone is be on the lookout, be ready to call police. And that doesn't just mean here in Surrey. Chris? Indeed, the search continues. Thanks, John. Well, for the first time, we can tell you what led to charges against three RCMP officers who were investigating the worst gangland murder in B.C. history. As Rumi Nadea reports, the charges of breach of trust and obstruction of justice arose from one officer's long-term sexual relationship with a witness in the Surrey Six murders. Former Mountie Derek Brassington, one of the lead RCMP investigators in the Surrey Six massacre, got drunk and had sex with a key potential witness. She was never called to testify. The harm is done. Yeah, the harm is done. 
Eileen Mohan's 22-year-old son, Christopher, was one of two innocent bystanders executed in the gangland hit 12 years ago. Mohan, disappointed in the actions of Brassington, who became involved with the witness Jane Doe 1 in 2009. Fundamentally, it was an abuse of the trust that the public places in police. The witness threatened because of what she knew about the 2007 murders. Brassington assigned to keep Jane Doe cooperating with police, but a romance developed. The two had sex in hotels across Canada. One night, a bar tab hitting $800, according to court documents. Mohan not in court when Brassington apologized. At the end of the day, you know, we're all human beings. I'm... I accept um, his apology. Brassington pleaded guilty to breach of trust and obstruction of justice. His punishment, a conditional sentence of two years less a day to be served in the community. It weakened our case it, and to the point that, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know if Christopher will get total justice. Other RCMP officers also went down in this case. Corporal Danny Michaud and retired Mountie David Attu both pleaded guilty to failing to maintain law and order. They also received conditional sentences. Romina Dea, Global News. It is rare for the party in power to win a by-election, but Nanaimo voters have ensured the NDP government will retain its one-seat edge in the legislature. The new Democrat, Sheila Malcolmson, scoring a relatively narrow victory in yesterday's vote, preserving the NDP Green Coalition majority for now. Richard Zussman has a wrap-up and the new challenge for the opposition Liberals. Your next MLA, Sheila Malcolmson. Somewhere under all this cheering, you can hear a giant sigh of relief. Premier John Horgan holding on to the seat in Nanaimo and ensuring a slim majority for the NDP with their Green Party partners in the B.C. legislature. This has been a big day for my government, a big day for the NDP on Vancouver Island. Sheila Malcolmson is the new NDP MLA and the 41st member of Horgan's caucus. Couple that with the three Greens and the parties will comfortably be able to govern. After an evening without much sleep, Malkinson was back at it today and looking forward. It's vital you know, that everybody came out both to vote and to volunteer to make sure that, that we were able to keep this as an NDP seat and be able to keep this cooperative government going. But the question is, how far forward can the NDP look? Premier John Horgan non-committal when asked whether he believes he can govern until the next fixed election date, which is the fall of 2021. I'm going to go as long as we can keep going. As for the Liberals, they're being forced to look forward as well. Nanaimo candidate Tony Harris finished second, a little less than 1,900 votes behind Malcolmson. The Greens' Michelle Ney finishing a distant third, capturing just 7% of the votes. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson telling reporters today that the Liberals are looking to get more fresh faces into the fold. At least three of our BC Liberal MLAs have signaled that they're not running again. And that's the opportunity for renewal with candidates like Tony, people who are young and enthusiastic, who know their community, and that's what we're looking for. The legislature returns in February. By then, Malcolmson should officially be sworn in, and she's hoping she won't have to go back to the polls anytime soon. Richard Zussman, Global News. And our Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry joins us with more perspective. Keith, there's one party, at the risk of reading mm -hmm. too much into this, <laughs> that can't really claim any kind of victory from last night. 
Yeah, you know, the Liberals did well, uh, gaining uh, an increase in their vote, uh, but the Green Party really took it on the chin yes, uh, yesterday, guys. And I've got a graphic here that just shows just what happened to each party's vote compared to the last election. The NDP's up modestly, but they already had a big lead to begin with. And uh, the Liberals' vote increased big time by eight points. That's significant. But look at the Greens, a big drop of 12.5 points from the 20% they've received in 2017. Uh, really troubling for the Greens. But Andrew Weaver, nevertheless, trying to put the best face forward, saying that if it were not for the Greens, the B.C. government under the NDP would have made all kinds of mistakes. Here's Mr. Weaver. If the B.C. NDP had been left alone with the reins of, of this government, I can tell you, we would have seen dogs' breakfasts coming across this uh, as law. We have worked very hard to mitigate some of the more outrageous uh, policies that the NDP have brought forward. More of a watchdog, less of a partner. Keith, the Greens have been given very little of what they want from the NDP, mm -hmm. so can we count on them continuing to support the coalition? I think so, because last night's results, I think, could probably mirror the results elsewhere across the province. If there was an election held anytime soon, there's no evidence that the Greens would pick up any seats. In fact, uh, be likely they could likely lose the three seats they currently have. So there's really no advantage for Mr. Weaver to take down this government. All he'd be doing, having an early election and potentially leading to the wipeout of his party. So he's stuck in a marriage of uh, convenience, but certainly not a lot of love there. All right. Keith Baldry in Victoria. Thanks, Keith. A suspected loan shark labeled an extreme risk who was banned from B.C. casinos allegedly continued to fund VIP gamblers at River Rock Casino for years after being flagged. Global's Sam Cooper uncovered the exclusive details. He joins us now from Ottawa with more on Paul King Jin. Sam, who is Mr. Jin and why was he banned from casinos? Mr. Jin is the man at the center of money laundering investigations in British Columbia. What we learned through documents is that he was banned for being an extreme risk. Allegedly, he was providing a lot of suspected dirty cash to Chinese VIP gamblers who would come and gamble large amounts in B.C. Mr. Jin was believed to be uh, linked to organized crime and also international money laundering. So even though he was banned, he was labeled ex an extreme risk, uh, you've learned there's plenty of evidence that Mr. Jin was continuing to fund these gamblers, even showing up at River Rock himself. So what action, if any, was taken? Yes, the documents show that despite this high-profile ban, Mr. Jin and his many alleged employees would show up at River Rock with bags of cash, Mr. Jin even showing up with about $500,000 himself. It got so bad in 2014 as this activity continued that uh, Lottery Corps managers had a meeting with River Rock Casino's top managers. An investigation had showed that Jin had allegedly delivered $3.9 million in cash in just six months. So River Rock's uh, managers were warned this has to stop. Mm -hmm. These uh, alleged loan sharks can't continue bringing in the cash and casino chips for these VIPs. So... Peter German's report into money laundering says B.C. casinos, including the River Rock, were unwittingly used for money laundering purposes. But clearly your investigation reveals otherwise. Yes, an audit document that we found alleges that despite these repeated warnings, despite the ban on Mr. Jin, in 2015, for unknown reasons, his activity continued at River Rock, delivering about $4 million in cash throughout the year. And River Rock Casino staff allegedly knowingly accepted this in areas covered by surveillance. 
It, we don't understand how this could have continued to happen. We've uh, reached out to the Lottery Corp for answers. We contacted uh, Great Canadian Gaming's management and asked. The, the casino says that they reported this. They work with police. The Lottery Corp also says they reported these activities to police. Uh, perhaps uh, adding more fuel to the fire as, uh, you know, the calls continue to grow for a public inquiry into this. All right, Sam, thanks for joining us. Thank you. The city of Vancouver appears to get the message about possible money laundering through City Hall. It's now put a $10,000 cap on cash payments. The decision comes from Tuesday's council meeting, which discussed concerns about people paying things like property taxes and business license fees with large amounts of cash. Last year, about $13 million of the $2 billion in revenue from the city or to the city collected were in cash. But city staff is still reviewing other measures to prevent money laundering as well. WorkSafe BC has slapped the forensic psychiatric hospital with the largest fine in BC history for failing to ensure the safety of its staff. The facility in Coquitlam has been fined more than $646,000. It's for two separate incidents last spring in which two nurses were physically and mentally traumatized. The BC Nurses Union says violent attacks on staff continue at the hospital. They are reviewing the fine and are considering their options, including asking that the money be reinvested back into safety and violence prevention solutions. WorkSafe BC is also part of an inaugural mental health conference for first responders. As more and more emergency personnel admit they struggle to deal with trauma they witness while on the job. Catherine Urquhart reports. When Corporal Dan Moskaluk held a press conference Tuesday about a missing man, he broke down. Sorry about that. Good. The longtime Mountie, who just retired, has PTSD. Moskaluk openly discusses his mental health, something now being encouraged in the world of first responders. There certainly was a time where, A, you wouldn't be talking to anyone or telling anyone, and members would be self-medicating, and generally by way of alcohol. Uh, today, I think just with the stigma, uh, you know, not being what it was years ago, uh, for people to come forward. Uh, there's a number of different programs throughout the different organizations. Former Mountie Pierre Lemaitre also suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and sadly took his own life. Preventing such tragedies central to the inaugural First Responders Mental Health Conference underway in Richmond. I, think, I don't think you're ever going to get eliminate suicide, um, but I think it's all the other things. It's the depression, it's the anxiety, it's the um, unhealthy relationship with alcohol and, and drugs and all of those other battles. I think what we're needing to do is make it okay to say those are unhealthy. We're going to give you something better to cope with. Police officers, firefighters and paramedics all face countless traumatic incidents during their careers. The toll, both professional and personal. The advice, share it, don't wear it. A message urged at the funeral of murdered Abbotsford officer John Davidson. Suck it up is not part of what we do. If you get hurt because you've responded heroically on behalf of this community doing your job, then I want you to take a knee. I want you to get help. Assistance can include peer support and return to work strategies. Helping our first responders, critical for them, their families, and society.
Catherine Cart, Global News. Right now, though, a news hour follow-up to that unusual rent-to-own option we told you about last fall from a Port Moody condo developer. As Aaron MacArthur reports, the offer has turned out to be so popular, the demand is far greater than the supply. The rent-to-own units are actually the homes that spread out throughout the complex. When the Panache Group launched its new project called 50 Electronic Avenue in Port Moody, it came with an unusual twist. 30 homes offered as rent-to-own. Two years of rent converted into equity as a down payment. The idea has been an overwhelming success. 500 people have submitted applications. And I think it goes to show the great need to try to solve this housing challenge. In order to qualify, people either have to live or work in Port Moody and must be first-time homebuyers. Christian Frakia jumped at the opportunity. Otherwise, I'd be saving for five, ten years before I even get a shot at it. So... Now I can just go right in. The range of people applying for the homes is as wide as it is diverse. 20-somethings to 50-somethings, even two-income professionals like Nadine Cornelius and her partner. The key part of this equation for her, locking in a price in today's dollars. We, we have this fear that by the time we come up with the down payment, the prices would have gone up so much that we can't afford what we have. Even with the community benefit of this project, it will have been two years between when it was approved and when shovels will hit the ground later this spring. The developer is worried cities are taking too long to approve projects, which only means the cost goes up for buyers. The developer doesn't pay for it, the city doesn't pay for it, it's the eventual buyer. And I think as long as we can remember that, I think it would help to solve some of the issues. The draw for the 30 lottery tickets will be sometime in March. A unique model to give more people a chance to buy their first home. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Well, the Vancouver Aquarium released more video today of a rescued baby fur seal that's being treated at their Marine Mammal Rescue Centre. The seven-month-old was found Monday swimming irregularly north of Campbell River. Mo, as she has been named, arrived at the hospital underweight and dehydrated. Since then, they say Mo has been resting, bathing and slowly improving. Good to hear. Well, for the past six years, scientists have been concerned about the rapid die-off of those things, sea stars up and down the West Coast, from California all the way north to Alaska. Up to 20 different species have been affected, and now it's hoped a new study out of SFU will begin to shed some light on what's happening. Here's Linda Ellsworth. What's been happening to the sea stars off the West Coast over the last six years has been described as an underwater zombie apocalypse. They sort of tend to turn into these kind of melted piles of goo and essentially in some species the arms can actually become dislodged and actually kind of walk away from the body. 20 species of sea stars have been impacted, from California all the way up the coast to Alaska. The cause? Some suspect warming ocean temperatures. To test that theory, Dr. Jen Burt collected data in deeper, colder offshore waters, where enormous sunflower sea stars might find refuge from the disease. But unfortunately, our study showed that that wasn't the case and that we saw steep declines just as bad in the deep water sea stars. And yet other evidence shows that temperature does play some kind of role. It's confusing, as is the theory that the denzovirus is responsible. Turns out it does cause disease in those massive sunflower stars, but not the other species affected. What is understood is the effect the lack of sea stars is having on the marine environment. The ecological impacts of the collapse of the sea stars is really 
showing up now in terms of um, urchin populations decimating the kelp forests. Voracious sea urchins are basically clear-cutting that underwater forest because there's no longer sunflower stars to eat them and keep their numbers in check. But there is some good news. And some other species of sea stars, like the ochre star that you see when you go down to the beach, have started to show some signs of recovery. Their population numbers are starting to go up a bit. Potentially good news for the ochre star. Not so for the sunflower sea stars. They've all but disappeared in California. And while a few small ones can be found in B.C. waters, their future remains uncertain. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Dozens of students in Vancouver got an out-of-this-world experience today. David Saint-Jacques chatted live from the International Space Station with students at Lord Selkirk Elementary School this morning. The kids showed off a recent coding project they had created and were able to ask the astronaut any questions. It's hoped events like these will encourage children to learn about digital literacy and science and technology. I think that uh, any level of excitement in, in science, technology, engineering, like I was saying, is, is a good thing. And uh, it's something that we need more of. It's something I, I enjoy trying to encourage. Do you guys uh, want to be astronauts when you grow up? Uh, actually, no. <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to be a pediatric surgeon. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Big goals here. Um, but I'm like, since I have a huge background in coding, I'm now in between computer software engineer or pediatric surgeon, so now I can't decide. <laughs> That's good to have options. Yeah, pediatric surgeon. 17 vehicles at a rooftop parking garage at Newark Liberty International Airport in New Jersey were damaged by fire this morning. It sent flames and heavy black smoke spewing into the air. Turns out the driver of the Dodge SUV where it started admitted to the Port Authority he'd just done some work under the hood. Also, he had a suspended license. It's unclear if he'll face charges. Airport operations were not impacted. The Crown is asking for a 10-year prison term for the man who caused the deadly Humboldt Broncos bus crash. In court today, he spoke to the families. Jaskarat Singh Sidhu, pardon me, Jaskarat Singh Sidhu blew through a stop sign and into the path of the junior hockey team's bus last April, killing 16 people and injuring 13. Court heard Sidhu was traveling between 86 and 96 kilometers an hour when he passed several signs warning about the intersection. Sadu, who pleaded guilty, told the court he takes full responsibility for what happened, blaming his lack of experience. He also apologized to the families of the victims. He faces a maximum sentence of 14 years for dangerous driving causing death and 10 years for dangerous driving causing bodily harm. The judge says she'll hand down the sentence March 22nd. A former devout follower of cult leader Charles Manson could be set free after spending more than four decades behind bars. A California parole board panel is recommending Leslie Van Houten be paroled. It's the third time the 69-year-old's been found suitable for release, but her past parole recommendations were blocked by the state governor, who has the final say. Van Houten was 19 years old when she was part of Manson's cult, which was responsible for seven killings in 1969, including actress Sharon Tate. In health matters tonight, a record 502 patients in B.C. were saved by organ donations last year. That's a 71% jump compared to five years ago. Jill Bennett has more on the reasons behind the sharp increase, including the impact of the opioid overdose crisis. 
So that's him just giving a little bit of attitude sitting in his grandma's convertible. Family members are remembering loved one Matthew Woodford. He was just 34 when he died in a fire in Vancouver last year. The paramedics did a great job. They uh, revived him, um, got him to ICU. Uh, unfortunately, his injuries were too great. But Matthew Woodford had registered to be an organ donor shortly after he turned 18. His death led to four people getting life-saving transplants, including one recipient who wrote a letter of thanks. It was so moving and it was, it was joyful to know that there was someone out there because of Maddie living their life to the fullest. 2018 was a record-breaking year in B.C. More than 500 people saved through 28 heart transplants, 50 lung transplants, and 77 liver transplants. A milestone was also reached with 339 kidney operations. We're really happy with that because we're getting people off dialysis and getting them to a better life, a uh, happier life, a healthier life, and uh, a life that's not as expensive for the healthcare system. There were 122 deceased donors last year, a 71% increase compared to five years ago. According to Dr. Landsberg, overdose deaths account for about 30% of organ donations. They are not all fentanyl-related, but it is a factor. It's usually a young person who was just a one-time user, um, and uh, the whatever drug they were using was contaminated with fentanyl. Uh, they've had a cardiac arrest. They've otherwise been totally healthy. Despite the increase in transplants, there are still 669 British Columbians on the wait list, and the need for people to register remains strong. Jill Bennett, Global News. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. An erratic car pulled over in Tennessee. Why police were shaking their heads during the arrest right after the weather forecast. Well, we are almost through with January. Let's crunch mm -hmm. the numbers now and bring in Christy for a look at what we uh, experienced. Pretty mild. Pretty mild, yes. It was a mild January. And in terms of rainfall, it was sort of a wet start to January, as you can see here. But the latter half of January certainly got a lot better. Remember all those sunsets that we had in the last couple of days? Yes. So let's break down the numbers. Days with rainfall, 16. Averages, 18. So it was fairly uh, nice in terms of the number of days of rain. Um, and then total rainfall, 139, whereas average is 168. So we were drier. We had more days of dry weather as well as it was mild. Pretty nice. But there was one soaker of a day. Check this day out. 54.8 millimeters of rain in one day. And I had a look at the record books. An all-time record for January was 68. So not quite uh, there, but certainly a contender. That's for sure. Here's a look at what we're expecting now. So I know the day isn't over. Today we've reported a but we'll likely report some rainfall before the end of the day. Significant rain expected through your commute to work tomorrow. Uh, expect to be a little slow, certainly. Now, in the afternoon, conditions will ease up a little bit, but I do still expect it to be wet during the majority of the commute. It's not until the dinnertime hour does it really push out of the region. And then even overnight, showers, but your Saturday's looking pretty nice. Just a slight chance of an isolated shower. But in the 24-hour period from tonight right through the 
end of the day Friday, we'll see anywhere from 30 to 50 millimeters of rain, the bulk of that along the North Shore. Meanwhile, areas across the north are preparing for the winter storm. It has already hit a lot of regions all across the north and now will shift down into the Colombian Kootenai region. This area in blue is a risk of freezing rain for the Caribou region. In the next 24 hours, you have the chance of seeing that. So this is how much more snowfall you'll see right into Saturday morning, anywhere from 10 to 25 centimeters of snow. And these regions potentially 10 to 20 centimeters with higher elevations and mountain passes seeing even more. And then after that, it's the cold. It's going to clear out, but it is going to plummet in terms of temperature. So snowfall tomorrow for you, Saturday, very cold and clear. Southern regions as well, that's the same pattern. Saturday, you'll see that transition to the cold, whereas our region, it will be Sunday, wet tomorrow, Saturday looking mostly dry, Sundays when the temperature plummets. And we could see snow by Sunday afternoon through the evening hours. Tune back in and we'll be able to refine that for you. And I had to show one last shot of the sunsets that we had over the last couple of days. This is one of my favorites. Thanks to David for that from Lions Bay. That is beautiful. Thank you, Christy. What a month for sunsets and sunrises. Okay, thank you. Caught on police dash cam in Tennessee, a driver who's either unclear on the concept of obeying police commands or, or is really just very thirsty. Just lost it. After leading sheriff's officers on a chase, the driver is finally boxed in and she and her passenger surrender to police. The driver gets down on the ground and holds out one hand, but can't resist taking a swig of her beer with the other. Well, she faces multiple charges, including reckless endangerment, evading arrest, and shocker, driving under the influence. Some good evidence there. I would say there's some good evidence. <laughs> All right, Squire joins us now. Maybe it was a non-alcoholic beer. Maybe. Oh, Jules, yeah. yeah. Well, it's going to be a party. I'm surprised you're not there. Oh, with the full oh, makeup, are you going to go later? I am going later. I'm racing down here after. And who are you? Down there who are you dressing as? <laughs> I'm dressing. I'm going to drive okay. him there so that he can do the makeup in the car on the way there. <laughs> I was going to say it was that old Family Guy bit where Lois dresses up as Peter Chris, and Peter says nobody dresses up as Peter Chris. <laughs> uh, the uh, Canucks have 31 games left in the regular season. They won't play until Saturday in Denver against the Avs. Of their final 31, only 16 are against teams that are currently in the playoffs, which means the Canucks have one of the better schedules of all those Western teams, and there are a lot fighting for the final wildcard spots. And Vancouver is very much in that race. But they were happy to get the All-Star break because just before it, the Canucks were kind of losing their mojo. I didn't think we were our best our last three games. I thought our team, uh, quite frankly, I thought we were a little tired. Uh, we had a hard grind. You know, at one point we had the most games and we had the three six-game road trips. But that's uh, that's part of the NHL and that's a good learning experience for our young guys. Uh, you know, the grind, the vigorous part of playing in the NHL. Oh, it's uh, felt great to be back on the ice after that that little bit of a stretch there. I think it's perfect amount of time where you get your rest, but at the same time you miss it and you want to come back and and start going right away. So I think it was great for us. Now the thought for some Canuck fans. For some Canuck fans, the hope 
that Vancouver might try to trade veteran defenseman Alex Edler, make that for prospects and or draft picks, is gone. Even though his contract runs out at the end of this season and he's 32 years old, that is not deterring the Canucks from not only keeping him out of trade talks, but also discussing signing him to a new contract, which is exactly what Alex Edler wants, because he wants to stay a Vancouver Canuck. Uh, like I said, I, I've said that I like it here. I've been, been fortunate enough to spend my whole career here and uh, you know, lived here for most part of my, my adult life. Uh, so uh, you know, I've been here when we've been really good and when we've been, been not so good. So uh, yeah, that's no secret. I always said that I like it. All right, the Jets, they must be tired. Three games in four nights coming out of the All-Star break. They're home now in frigid Winnipeg to take on Columbus. Good start, though. Mark Scheifele, good pass from Blake Wheeler. Uh, that made it 1-0. Artemi Panarin, who will likely be traded before the deadline by Columbus, and there will be a lot of teams lining up for his talents. That makes it 1-1. Winnipeg is tied at 2-2 in the second, but they're going to lose the lead. Columbus gets it with Oliver Bjorkstrand. 3-2 second period. Blue Jackets lead. Los Angeles Rams head coach Sean McVay is considered the 30-something version of 60-something Bill Belichick, a coach who has a genius mind not only for strategizing a football game but being able to get the players to buy into the system. But being such a student of the game, McVay has nothing but admiration for the New England Patriots, and he thinks their secret weapon during their dynasty is their sheer will to win and never give up no matter what the score is. A lot of times I've heard the phrase, you know, more games are lost than they are won in the NFL, and you never see the Patriots beat themselves. They handle situations, their big-time players make plays at the most opportune moments, uh, and they handle adversity extremely well. When they fall behind, I mean, you look back at the Super Bowl a couple years ago to continue to compete when you're down 28-3 to and find a way to get it done, but there's an internal belief that that team had. You could just feel it watching it, even just watching it on TV, and I think that consistent belief and expectation that we're going to find a way is, is a really powerful thing. Ah, there's the famous 16th hole, Waste Management, Phoenix Open, you might want to say. This is Justin Thomas. He was basically playing lawn darts out there in the first round. One of three, leading at seven under par. Another one at minus lucky seven is Ricky Fowler. Hey, Ricky, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Hey, Ricky. Hey, Ricky. Okay. Here's Chase Chesson Hadley. Sorry, too late. late. Okay. Chesson Hadley drives the green. This is an eagle putt, but this eagle putt goes off the green. I don't think I've ever seen a pro do this. I don't think I've ever seen a guy I've played with do this. And he takes a six instead of what could have been a two or maybe a birdie. Oh, no. I know. And he's sad and ashamed. There you go. Here's your snow report for today. Again, not a lot of new snow, except for a few isolated areas in the province. Grouse Mountain has a base of 225, Sasquatch 211, Revelstoke picked up 10 centimeters, Fernie, Manny Park and Whitewater though will over the next 24 hours. Same for the interior mountains, Big White, Silver Star and Sun Peak should see fresh snow by Saturday morning. Nothing new for Kicking Horse in Mount Washington, but they should see fresh snow by Saturday morning. Powder King, a nice five centimeters and more is on the way. Some sad news from the local sporting and business world. Well, yes. Um, the Griffiths family has touched a lot of 
things in this community. Mm -hmm. Charity-wise, this station, station, broadcasting and sports. I mean, it was the Griffiths who brought the NBA to town. It didn't last as long as we would have liked, but if it wasn't for them, there would have been no Grizzlies. I dare to say if it wasn't for that family, the Canucks perhaps would have left town because they had a lot of problems with the P&E when they were trying to get a better deal at uh, the Pacific Coliseum. All of that will be in this story about the brilliant and amazing life of Emily Griffiths, who died yesterday at the age of 96. It's not easy to encapsulate in the framework of a news story all that Emily Griffiths, her husband Frank, and their family did for Vancouver and BC. Their main businesses were in many ways part of the fabric of this community. This very television station, Global BC, which was then BC TV under the Griffiths stewardship, CKNW Radio, and the Vancouver Canucks, which they purchased in 1974, mainly because Emily Griffiths wanted them to. My dad was approached by some individuals to, to raise a group of individuals, to raise some money to buy the team. And he did uh, do that. Uh, however, when it came time to uh, pay up, so to speak, uh, the investors didn't show up uh, for the most part. So my dad said, okay, uh, went home, talked to my mom, and my mom said, no, you're not walking away from this. We're doing this. And he says, no, 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 we can't really afford to do this. We've got all these other obligations, da-da-da, radio and television at the time. And my, my mom said, no, no, we're doing it. Perhaps the most amazing thing the Griffiths family did while they owned the Canucks was not ask for public funds to build their own arena, which is now, of course, Rogers Arena. A lot of sports owners would have held a city up for ransom, threatened to leave without taxpayer help. The Griffiths never did that. The, uh, the Canucks weren't so much of a business for a long time in terms of profitability, but they were, they were part of the city and that was important to them and, and essentially another way to give back and make sure that the fans of this town, that we really, we really weren't owners so much as we were you know, basically the trustees of the franchise for the fans, the real fans. It isn't just Rogers Arena and keeping the Canucks here that's part of Emily Griffiths' legacy. She was also a driving force behind charities like the CKNW Kids Fund, the Variety Show of Hearts, being on this station since the 60s, and Canuck Place. I know my mom was very proud of that, and she and my dad, uh, before he passed, uh, were involved, and she continued that to this very day. It's not very often that one life can leave an impact on many, but Emily Griffith's life did. You know, to be honest, the word just comes to mind is to... It's just privileged. Let's call him. Great story. There you go. Well, she was a great lady. I was lucky enough to meet her a couple of times and work for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much for watching, folks. Have a great night.